Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, coming to you from a very cluttered spare room in North Wales, and where each time around I strive to bring you those tales of true crime that you won't tend to find covered by every show in creation. They're often long forgotten, largely unfamiliar, sometimes unbelievable or mind-bending, but which are all true, and that I've scoured the darkest corners of the UK and Ireland to bring to you. Doing so is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, my one-eyed, almost toothless, beloved, hairy, evil overlord, Pixie. The true crime enthusiast cat is here with me as per ever, but more importantly, so are yourselves, the wonderful enthusiasts that make the show possible. Because otherwise, it's just the cat looking at me, talking to myself in the spare room, and thinking, what's that pillock doing? It is as wonderful as always having you join us today, which I thank you kindly for doing so, and I hope that as you have, then it's for a tale that finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. So I'm having a slight break for a couple of weeks from the regular show following this week. I've explained a couple of times previously, I'm moving house imminently, and so I'll be busier than a busy thing on a busy day. I'm working harder than Barry White's belt while I'm off but I shall be back in the middle of next month, and then it will be business as usual, even more so. To compensate, perhaps, this week brings double enthusiast then, as to do the tale that I've selected justice, it works so much better if it's broken up into two parts. You just find that sometimes. I don't always mean to do so many two-part episodes. But you start researching the story and then ends up, there turns out to be so much to it that you think, oh, it's that much more manageable. And then you don't scrimp on it then at all if you break it down into two parts. For the one I've selected, we head back to the mid-1990s and to the city of Nottingham in Nottinghamshire in the East Midlands for a tale that will surely strike fear into the hearts of many and give empathy to those involved in the crime. A couple of stats about Nottingham. We haven't done the Wikipedia bit for a while, have we? It's the largest urban area in the East Midlands. It was the first place in England to record an earthquake back in 1180. One of its two football teams, Notts County, is the world's oldest professional association football club. It's where the first boot store was opened in the UK. And is also the birthplace of traffic lights and ibuprofen. It's a bloody good name for an album, that is too, actually. The bell in the 200-foot dome of Nottingham's council house that strikes the hour is called Little John, which weighs 10.5 tonnes, has the deepest tone of any clock tower bell in Britain, and is believed to be the loudest clock bell in the country. The University of Nottingham Student Union was the location for the first ever gig by Paul McCartney and Wings, only the band The Beatles could have been, on February 9th, 1972. It was the first time McCartney and I'm named after him, point of note, had played live in five years, and tickets cost just 40p. And notable people to hail from Nottingham include authors D.H. Lawrence and J.M. Barry, musical artists Jake Bug, Sleaford Mods and the Stereo MCs, Lioness's goalkeeper Mary Earps, actors Vicky McClure and Samantha Morton, and of course, a bit more in keeping to our genre, Dr. Harold Shipman. There are tons of great stats concerning the area, so many that I was hard pushed to choose a favourite, but I narrowed it down to animal rights group PETA, 
people for the ethical treatment for animals, once tried unsuccessfully to get Nottingham to change its name to Not Eating Ham. Yes, straight up. Snowball, the world's oldest guinea pig, passed away in Nottingham in 1979, aged 14 years and 10 months old. And Nottingham's Woolerton Hall was used for Wayne Manor in the film The Dark Knight Rises. And incidentally, the county actually has a village called Gotham, which was in turn the inspiration for the fictional Gotham City. There is a whole story behind that. Just have a quick look up of it. It would take too long for me to describe here. And it pays host to thousands of Batman fans each year. So not too bad stats this time around then. And Woolerton will feature in the tale I'm about to bring also. Back in 1994, Nottingham was the scene of a crime that it is fair to say captivated the nation like only a handful do. I am amazed I haven't found this tale covered by anybody already. And it is one I've long planned to cover. So here you go. As I say, it captivated the nation. Indeed, it was worldwide news at the time because it dealt with what must be every parent's nightmare, the snatching of a child. Now, the snatching of a child of any age would be horror enough, but the child concerned here was just five hours old at the time. The episode contains details and descriptions of a crime and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts for the first part of a tale I've entitled A Mother's Love. Back in 1994, a small detached house in the Nottinghamshire village of Burton Joyce was home to then 33-year-old painting and decorating supervisor Roger Humphreys, his 32-year-old wife, local community midwife Karen, and the couple's three-year-old son, Charlie, the archetypal perfect family. By then married for nine years, the couple had always wanted another child, and were thrilled when in late 1993, Karen fell pregnant once again. There's nothing to report that it was anything but a normal pregnancy, and being a midwife, Karen was the perfect person to know exactly if things were okay. And in the early hours of Friday the 1st of July 1994, Roger had taken Karen into the delivery suite of the Queen's Medical Centre in Nottingham as her waters had broken. At one minute past ten that morning, Karen gave birth to a healthy baby girl weighing nine pounds and a widely published photograph taken only shortly after the birth shows Karen holding her new daughter, displaying that look of equal exhaustion but equal elation that all new mothers have. Roger himself was thrilled at having a girl. It isn't reported as to whether the couple knew the sex of their baby prior to birth and after taking a few photographs, the new parents were told that Karen and Baby would shortly be being transferred to a side room in a different ward, Ward B27. At 11.30am, Roger left the hospital and returned to his parents' home to collect Charlie, who had been beside himself with excitement at the arrival of his new sibling. Roger and Charlie returned to the hospital some three hours later and entered the QMC through the back entrance using a staircase to reach B-floor as Roger knew his way around because his company had done some painting and decorating work there. 
Beside him, Charlie tugged at his hand, very excited, and practically led him to side room one, where Karen and the new baby had been waiting. As the door into the room had a viewing screen, anyone passing would have glanced in and seen the new happy family. As Karen began fussing with Charlie and introduced him to his new baby sister, who was at the time unnamed, but was to be called Abby, and who was asleep in a cot at the side of the bed, wearing a cream-coloured hospital nightie bearing the University Hospital logo and wrapped in a pink shawl. Shortly after 3pm, Karen got out of bed and walked along the corridor to phone her mother, and only a few seconds later, a dark-haired woman, filled with smiles, entered the room dressed in what appeared to be a nurse's uniform. I say appeared because there are conflicting reports about the colour of it. It's reported several times as being light blue, white or even grey. Charlie was lying on his mother's bed with a baby at his side and Roger was at the time looking down at his hands assembling a child's model 911 Porsche which he and Karen had bought as a present from the baby to car mad Charlie. And so he only half turned to see the woman. She must have seen Karen walk out of the room, indeed, had likely passed her in the corridor, as she asked Roger, almost apologetically, Is it alright to take the baby for a hearing test, or do you want me to wait for the mother to come back? Roger replied, She's making a phone call, which the nurse accepted, saying, I'll pop back in about 15 minutes. Roger recalled later how the woman seemed to hover in the doorway, partially inside the room, holding the door open with her right hand. When Karen returned to the room about 10 minutes later, she went straight to the bathroom before Roger could mention to her the test that had just been mentioned by the nurse. As she disappeared from view, the door opened again and the same nurse seemed to follow her in, entering while the door was still open. She must have expected Karen to have been in the room, and Roger half assumed she'd spoken to Karen because they seemed to come in together. He and Charlie were playing with a Porsche 911, as the nurse once again said, Is it alright if I do this hearing test? I'll only be a few minutes, I'm just down the corridor. This time, her tone was more firm and instructional, rather than apologetic. She scooped up Abby as she spoke, and then calmly left the room. Karen emerged from the bathroom about 10 seconds later, but by then, the nurse had left the ward. Explaining years later, Karen realised immediately that something wasn't right, saying, I went out into the corridor to phone my mother, and then walked to the toilet at the end of the corridor. I was away for only a few minutes. When I returned, I looked around the room. Where's the baby? I asked Roger. He replied, Oh, a nurse came and took her for a hearing test. I immediately realised something was wrong, because in those days, you didn't take newborns away from their mothers for a hearing test. Karen walked along the corridor to the nurse's station, and it soon became clear that Abby hadn't been taken by a member of staff. Then, with dawning and what must be unimaginable horror, it became clear that the woman didn't work at the hospital at all and was a complete stranger who'd kidnapped their precious baby. She just walked out of the hospital with Abby in her arms. Abby was just five hours old. 
the absolute stuff of nightmares that isn't it roger described later the woman i thought was a nurse came into the room almost immediately after karen went to ring her mother she was in a grey uniform as i recall and because i was in a state of elation about the birth nothing about her rang any alarm bells i ran everywhere like a crazy man i was in a terrible state i dashed along corridors and ran up the ramp of the car park checking vehicles looking everywhere for a woman with a baby but by then she was well away within five minutes the hospital was being searched room by room and security guards were outside stopping buses and talking to pedestrians but to no avail the woman and abby were nowhere to be seen by nightfall a huge police operation had swung into action behind the scenes Roger and Karen were fearing the worst and just about holding it together, thinking, what if the woman who took the baby couldn't cope? What if she ditched Abby where no one could find her? What if she had more sinister intentions? Detective Superintendent Harry Shepard, the officer in charge, was operating in real time at West Bridgeford Police Station in Nottingham, where the incident room had been set up on the top floor all the time bearing the uncomfortable knowledge that one wrong decision could lead to the death of a child. Detective Sergeant Nick Holmes, an officer who was to play a notable role in the investigation, was in the robbery squad office when he was called to a briefing on the crime that would make headlines across the globe. Mr Holmes, now retired, but who at the time led the robbery team, Recall later how he got a call to head to West Bridgeford as news emerged of Abby's abduction, saying, We'd not heard what had happened obviously at that time because it wasn't made news, but I got a call to go to West Bridgeford immediately. I wasn't told why, I was just told I had to be there within 30 minutes. I drove to Bridgeford and there were cars everywhere, dozens of cars just left abandoned on the roads around it because the car parks were all full. I knew there was something significant happening and then when I went into the incident room that they'd set up or was in the process of being set up there were a lot of people there all detectives and then Harry Shepard came into the room the detective superintendent who was the senior investigating officer for that inquiry you knew it was a big deal but nobody knew why it was when he came into the room that he explained what had happened up to 40 people were there for the initial briefing and by 24 hours later more resources more manpower and experienced officers were pumped into the investigation which mr holmes describes as the biggest inquiry nottinghamshire has had it probably still is in terms of media attention it was worldwide we had the world's media there we had to commandeer the church next door the church hall to accommodate everybody it transpired that the bogus nurse had entered the large hospital. At the time, the Queen's Medical Centre reportedly was a real labyrinth, having more than 20 miles worth of hospital corridors. From the main entrance, and had travelled some 270 yards past the nurse's station to reach the side wards. She'd made a trial run and attempted to take Abby, instead saying she would come back in about 15 minutes. But somewhere outside, She'd taken a deep breath and steeled herself, saying, This is it. She had grabbed Abby and then, not wasting any time, had taken a route out of the ward past the obstetrics ward 
the Midwifery Training Unit and the Department of Obstetrics and Gynaecology, including passing a security camera before heading into a male toilet and discarding the nurse's uniform. It was found shortly afterwards during the frantic search. She had then left the hospital via the main entrance. A middle-aged couple leaving the hospital, Jim and Julie Morris, had been passed by a woman in the underpass leading from the hospital main entrance onto Derby Road at about 3.30pm, and she had drawn attention to herself because she'd been walking very quickly and carrying a baby in an odd way, very low on her stomach. Mr Morris later recalled, She was five yards away, and I saw a little pink leg sticking out from a blanket and an identity bracelet. The woman seemed nervous, but I didn't think anything was wrong until she made to get into a red car, possibly a Ford Fiesta, but it was a ruse. She then carried on walking very fast. Julie Morris, meanwhile, added, I just wish I'd done more myself. I knew there was something wrong. It was obviously a brand new baby. Its hair was still damp, and I could see the ankle tag. She was walking very briskly and carrying the child in an odd way, with one hand on its bottom and another on its back. But she wasn't really cuddling her. She had the child held really low, almost against her stomach. I realised the woman wasn't carrying a handbag or anything, and with a baby that small, even if you pop just next door, you have to take all the things tiny babies need. She turned around and gave me a really filthy look, as if to say, why are you following me? She then walked up to a car, and I think she was trying to convince me she was getting into it, but she didn't, and then she just vanished. I'm totally distraught, and I feel guilty that I should have done more. The Morrises were worried by what they'd witnessed, and returned to the hospital to report the incident. By then, staff were already looking outside the hospital but didn't realise the abductor had changed her clothes, for she was now wearing a green top, half-length dark grey leggings, and a pair of black plastic sunglasses, and had vanished. Both Jim and Julie Morris and Roger Humphreys described the woman as being white, with a pale complexion and local accent, in her late 20s to early 30s, being 5 feet 2 inches to 5 feet 4 inches tall, plump, and with long flowing dark permed hair, which was pulled away from her face by hair grips, but which still reached the middle of her back, very possibly a wig. Through a later cognitive interview, Roger had also remembered seeing this woman earlier when he returned to the hospital with Charlie at about 2.30pm. As they walked along the main corridor outside Ward B27, the bogus nurse was some 60 feet in front of him, walking in the same direction. Although he only saw her for a few seconds, and from behind, he remembered her because of her distinctive hair. He also noticed she had full or fat calves, and thought she was wearing tights, though he couldn't remember the colour, although was certain that they were not black. It was later reported that the bogus nurse may have made a dummy run of the abduction the previous day also, as a couple visiting the hospital Helena and Colin Wright later told how they had that day seen a young woman matching the description of the kidnapper, dressed as a nurse, although who stood out from the other nurses as the uniform she wore didn't quite match the other nurses, and who wore an obvious wig. They had both remarked about it, 
and laughed at it. Three photo fits of the abductor were drawn up from the descriptions given by Roger Humphreys, Jim and Julie Morris, and staff at the QMC who had seen the woman, whilst an examination of the hospital's CCTV's 29 cameras were to provide a grainy image of the abductor herself, and two video stills were removed from this. They were both taken by a camera in a corridor near the main hospital entrance that Friday afternoon, though frustratingly, only showed the back of the woman. The first still, which was timed at 3.11pm, although the clock on the CCTV was at the time 10 minutes fast, showed the woman in her nurse's uniform, and on this image, the woman is empty-handed. In the next, a shot timed at 3.32pm, but again was thought to be 10 minutes fast, showed a woman in casual clothing who is seen possibly carrying something. Now based on the time and the description given by witnesses Jim and Julie Morris, who had seen her outside the hospital, this image was thought to depict Abby's abductor having discarded the uniform and taken her from the hospital. The day after Abby was abducted, Karen, close to collapse, as I'm sure you can imagine, made a direct heartbreaking public appeal to the abductor to bring her a baby back. Television footage from the press conference shows her and Roger's despair, as, held by an ashen-faced Roger, tearful Karen said, Whoever has taken our baby, can they please, please give her back? We've got a little boy who wants to know where his baby has gone. If anybody knows any information, can they just let us know? The abductor, however, as you can imagine, failed to respond. Now, as I said at the start of the tale, the abduction of a baby, not even a day old, made headlines across the country and around the world. And Roger and Karen were at the centre of it, as Karen explained later. We moved in with friends because the whole world's eyes seemed to be on us. They went to stay at an undisclosed location to escape the media hordes, but even there, the messages of goodwill and hope flowed thick and fast. A special mass in their parish church, the Anglican Church on Mansfield Road, was dedicated to Karen and Roger, and the hundred-strong congregation united in prayer in front of lighted candles. There were messages from all over the world for the family, within a couple of days, from anonymous donors, local residents, and two national newspapers, a reward of £50,000 had been offered for information resulting in the safe return of Baby Abby, and even Princess Diana sent a goodwill message to the distraught family as they waited for news. From one mother to another, she wrote. Baby snatch expert, how you become something like that is beyond me, Ken Norman also appealed in a national newspaper for Abby's abductor to contact him directly explaining in the article that once the woman had begun to bond with the child, she was only likely to give her up if she became ill, saying, In a few days' time, nothing on earth will persuade her to bring the child back. By then, it will be as though the child is her own. I hope she hasn't reached that stage. If she follows the pattern normally set by women who snatch babies, her every concern will be that child. If the child gets ill, she can't go to a doctor, and I think then she would perhaps turn herself in. 
Information came into the incident room thick and fast from all over the UK, with the mostly well-meaning public offering details of anything that could be possibly connected. Such had the hearts of the nation been captivated by baby Abby's abduction. These ranged from the theft of a white medical uniform and ID from a car in Newport, to the discovery of a child's carry cot that had been dumped in Chepstow. The abduction was also for a time considered possibly linked to two attempted abductions of a child in Gloucestershire by a bogus social worker some three days before Abby had been taken, though this was later ruled out. And it was also reported that there had been another kidnap scare at the same hospital 12 weeks previously, though this one by a woman from the area who was well known to police and who was immediately eliminated from the Abby inquiry. Someone we've met before on the show, a couple of times, psychologist Paul Britton, was convinced that Abby's abductor would be a local woman, however. Detective Superintendent Shepard had immediately brought him on board at the beginning of the inquiry, and when the day after the abduction, Detective Superintendent Shepard made his own direct appeal at the press conference in West Bridgeford, directly to the person who had kidnapped Abby, his words had been meticulously drafted with Mr Britton's help with the detective being at pains to sympathise with the abductor's problem and to reassure her that she would not be ostracised by society if she gave Abby up. His appeal went as follows. I want to appeal directly to you, the woman who is now holding Abby. You have needs of your own and problems that have led you to take her. I realise that you love Abby, but she's Karen's child, not yours. Karen is suffering such anguish that of all people you will understand, not knowing if her baby is safe or well and being unable to hold her. Please, please telephone and let Karen know if Abby is well. You, more than most other people, will know how important your telephone call will be. We do understand and are ready to give you all the help, understanding and support appropriate to your needs. Our only consideration at this time is to restore all the important people closely associated with these difficult events back to some degree of happiness. One of the important people I have in mind is the woman who was driven to take Abby from her mother. Abby is being missed by her family, and I know all of the people sympathise and support her through this time. I'm sure that everyone would join me in saying that whoever took Abby from the hospital has our sympathies also. It must have been very difficult to take such a lonely step. The officer then announced that he was taking a back seat at press conferences so he could concentrate on the investigation, which by that time, only a day later, the 71 officers working on it had already received more than 500 calls concerning the abduction. Psychologists praised the approach of the appeal, complimenting the police for adapting to the unusual role of part law enforcer, part social worker. It was devised by Paul Britton, who refers to it in a chapter of his excellent book, The Jigsaw Man. Drop everything and grab it if you haven't read it, you won't be able to put it down, and which I've used heavily in researching the tale. In the meantime, he was drawing up a psychological profile of the abductor, which I shall just summarise here as follows complete with a summary of the reasons each point was arrived at. The woman is aged from 20 to her early 30s. 
she is comfortable in the hospital setting and familiar with the QMC. This was clear from how she'd managed to conduct herself over a long period of time without attracting attention or being deterred. She didn't appear lost or nervous or frightened whilst she was in the hospital. She has good intelligence with an education at least to secondary level. She is confident and easy in deceit. Again, this is because of the planning involved to conceive the plan, acquire the dress and wig, and to deal with unexpected events. She is a careful planner, but not exhaustively so. Good at the outline, perhaps, but not the meticulous detail, for she showed her limitations. When she'd walked out of the hospital, she seemed almost unsure of what to do next. She hesitated and then appeared hurried, looking downwards and drawing attention to herself. Why? Because she hadn't planned that far ahead. She also hadn't thought about how she was going to get the baby home. She hadn't brought any clothes or any blankets for Abby. It was like the hospital had suddenly become a maze and overwhelmingly she had to get out. Therefore, suddenly onlookers began to notice her and see her anxiety, evidence that she was prone to panic under pressure. She is a risk taker. Through each step of the abduction, the chance of her being discovered increased, but she carried on, changing her clothes, walking the corridor, penetrating the heart of the hospital, where at any time a member of staff could have asked, Can I help you? Once she was inside the room, Roger could have sensed something was wrong when she picked Abby up, or a genuine nurse could have even walked into the room, therefore exposing a lie and cutting off her escape route. Abby's abductor might have considered all of these things, but she certainly recognised the risk that was involved. She had acted alone and would have prepared a home for the baby. With a credible rationale such as faking a pregnancy to cover Abby's arrival, which had to be convincing because she wasn't going to make a fool of herself. She's likely to be in a relationship, but not a stable one because of her desire to secure it by taking a baby. Now, as for motivation, Britton said that there were three major possibilities for her motivation and five others which were less likely. As he quotes in The Jigsaw Man, of the major three, you are firstly looking at the possibility that the abductor could be a woman who is grossly psychologically disturbed. This will include some sort of delusional system where she sees Abby as her baby, being reclaimed, and no one else's. Secondly, you may be dealing with a woman who is trying to protect or sustain a failing relationship, and she thinks that a baby will influence things. Either she wants to make someone think they're the father of her child, or she wants to hold together a marriage or relationship. This could include women who are told they cannot have children. Thirdly, you may be dealing with a person who is psychologically isolated and unable to build up relationships with adults, but who feels confident with children. She wants to be loved and needs a baby who will love her unconditionally. Though these were the likely possible motivations, the others were that it could be a personal matter, it may have been a statement aimed to discredit and strike at the QMC rather than the parents, or that Abby might have been stolen to order in a commercial transaction or abducted for some ritual or religious purpose. Now it was not thought to be a woman obsessed with Roger, 
and who had taken the child because she believed it should have been hers and not Karen's. And nor was it thought to be personal against Karen, perhaps the actions of a woman she'd come into contact with in her role as a midwife, because Karen and Abby were originally meant to be in a different ward and had been moved to the side room at only very short notice. The abductor also couldn't have known that Karen was a midwife, otherwise she wouldn't have waited, because Karen would have known that Abby didn't need a hearing test. The abductor, therefore, wasn't aiming to punish the Humphreys specifically, she just wanted a baby, any baby. It was equally not thought to be aimed at the QMC, perhaps the actions of a disgruntled member of staff or a patient who felt they'd lost their child as a result of some perceived mistake who might want to punish the hospital. Because there are far easier ways to punish a hospital that don't involve child abduction or hurting innocent parents. As for the latter two, the likelihood of Abby being stolen to order or for ritual purposes was so remote that they could be downgraded, although of course not dismissed entirely. No, Paul Britton was convinced that Abby had been taken in an attempt to weld a failing relationship or a marriage together and as I said, would likely live within a close proximity to the hospital, certainly within a few miles of it. Every child of the appropriate age encountered during the search had to be checked and cross-referenced with doctors, health visitors or midwives. Questions had to be asked about where the baby was born, when it was born, who was your doctor. GPs in the area were also advised to look out for anyone bringing in a child for examination without the proper records or someone saying they were on holiday in the area or only temporary visitors. The person who took Abby was bound to be worried about immunisation but also if she'd been healthy up until then or if she was colic or something similar as by that stage usually babies would have been seen by a paediatrician in hospital and a GP as well as having midwife visits for the first 10 days and a visit from a health visitor. One of Detective Superintendent Shepard's first questions had been, is she likely to harm the baby? To which Britton replied that the woman holding Abby was unlikely to harm her as long as she wasn't panicked, explaining, the risk will increase significantly, however, if she panics or feels fearful of being punished if she's caught. If she thinks she might be trapped in a difficult situation, she might run off and abandon Abby, who isn't going to survive more than a few hours on her own. It was for the same reasoning that the photo fits and stills from the hospital CCTV were initially held back from the press. The public weren't going to recognise her from the stills, and not conclusively from the photo fits either, but the abductor would obviously recognise herself and then could easily believe that others could identify her, which may well have caused her to panic and abandon Abby, where she wouldn't be found until it was too late. Britton continued, But the longer she has the baby, the closer they're going to bond. That's why the next 48 hours are vital. You've got to appeal directly to her, and show her the enormity of the anguish being suffered by Roger and Karen, especially Karen. She's got to see them as real people and not cardboard cutouts. If you haven't reached her by 48 hours, then one of two things has happened. Either she's heard the appeal and isn't willing to respond, or she's cut herself off and isn't listening. 
At the same time, she's bonding more strongly with the baby, and will be beginning to regard Abby as hers. This diminishes her appreciation of Roger and Karen as real people, and reduces the likelihood of her giving Abby up voluntarily. There would be no demand to give yourself up, because that needed too big a step from the abductor, and instead, she would repeatedly hear the gentle urging for her to let Karen know that Abby was safe. Just chipping away at her like that was was the strategy for Detective Superintendent Shepard's appeal. Unfortunately, it was a fact of life that for such a high-profile and urgent case, that some of the responses would come from hoaxers. People do vile stuff such as this for all variety of reasons, don't they? It was stressed that these had to be filtered out by testing their offence-related knowledge, asking the caller to give details of how Abby had been taken, and other information that only the true abductor could know. Now, this carefully planned strategy went somewhat out of the window just five days into the investigation. With Karen, Roger and their family on edge, despite them knowing that police at all were doing all they could to find Abby, The nerves and emotions were stretched and shredded to breaking point and they were struggling to hold on to hope. Indeed, Karen recalled many years later, I was thinking all kinds of awful things. I was hoping whoever had taken it wouldn't deliberately harm Abby. But then I worried that perhaps whoever it was wouldn't be able to cope and would just dump her in a ditch. It must be such an unimaginable nightmare, mustn't it, eh? How would you even put yourself for a second in someone's shoes who's going through that? Unimaginable. The Humphreys were to be dealt a further blow a bit later that week, and to be given first-hand a glimpse of just how cruel some people can be. Back in 1994, the regional TV station Central hosted a monthly programme called Crime Stalker, which was fronted by the former Deputy Chief Constable of Manchester, John Stalker. Like Crime Watch UK, it was a mixture of offence reconstructions, stolen property reports, and a showcase for various photo fits and video footage that people could call in with if they had any information about, though my beloved Crime Watch beat it hands down, and which, off on a slight tangent, I have been recently working my way through watching them all again on YouTube, and the uploader, Redcard74, what a pure legend. On the Wednesday evening following Abby's abduction, despite pleas from the investigating team not to disrupt the carefully planned strategy, it was a case of rank outweighing common sense, and then Chief Constable of Nottinghamshire Constabulary, Dan Crompton, had gone ahead and made an appeal about the most high-profile case in the UK all official-like in full police bib and tucker, with a script drafted by senior police officers and staff of the programme. Following this appeal, several hundred calls were received, including a couple from a mystery caller naming himself Gary, who had phoned the hotline number for the programme several times, and said that his wife was holding Abby, claiming that she'd abducted Abby because she was desperate for a baby, after losing one 12 months earlier. Reportedly convincing and distressed, he spoke for several minutes to presenter John Stalker and assured him that Abby was being well looked after. 
Gary rang off before police could get enough details to trace him, and Mr. Crompton appealed for him to get back in touch, though he wasn't to again that evening. Following the Central TV appeal, John Stalker had appeared on Breakfast TV the following morning, confidently declaring that his policeman's instincts told him the caller was genuine. Being an experienced police officer, Stalker had no doubt assumed that the call had been through the formal filters that were in place to weed out hoaxes, and that his job was to try and hang on to the call at Gary for as long as possible and elicit more details. The same day, following approval given from senior police officers at Force Headquarters, a uniformed police officer had also made a special live appeal to Gary's wife, who Gary had said normally watched afternoon soap operas between 2 and 3pm, interrupting the broadcast of one of these shows to do so. But none of the technical questions had actually been asked to the caller, no proof of life had been sought, no details requested that only the abductor would know, nor any analysis of the mental functioning of the caller sought. Police wasted several vital man-hours hunting for Gary, sifting through the 311 calls that were made to the incident room nominating possible identities for him, before tracing the calls to phone boxes in the Gloucestershire and Gwent areas, and ultimately identifying one home number that they swooped on, only to ultimately discover that it was nothing more than a malicious hoax. On the 12th of July, 36-year-old father of three, Adrian Brooks, of Badminton Road in Matson in Gloucester, who was a worker in the Cowley Manor Old People's Care Home, was arrested and was originally charged under the Telecommunications Act, accused of causing GBH to Roger and Karen Humphreys by making these false claims in phone calls, though this was later dropped to a charge of wasting police time. When he was arrested, Brooks reportedly said, It's not me. I've made no calls about the baby. When it was put to him that at least one of the calls had been made from his house, he then claimed that it must have been two unidentified hitchhikers who were staying at his house who had made the calls. Pull the other one, it's got bells on it. After appearing before Nottingham Magistrates on the 13th of July, he was bailed to a secret probation hostel outside Nottinghamshire and Gloucestershire for his own safety. Such would have been the public fury at such a callous act. His estranged wife, Teresa, speaking from a women's refuge where she was living with a couple's three children to escape Brooks, which is quite telling, was so horrified at his actions, she immediately issued this statement through her solicitor. Mrs. Brooks separated from her husband on February 12th of this year and is currently pursuing divorce and injunction proceedings. Since the couple separated, my client has been unaware of his activities. My client is extremely distressed by this whole situation, and as a mother herself, can understand and empathise with Abby's parents. When he reappeared before magistrates on Monday the 5th of August, Brooks admitted the charge of wasting police time, claiming the whole thing to have been a bit of a blur and that he'd made the calls because his marriage had fallen apart and his wife had taken their three children without telling him where she'd gone, saying, 
it's hard to explain. Because of my marital circumstances, I've been very depressed and on medication. I just wanted someone to speak to. Despite the fact that he'd since seen a psychiatrist while in the bail hostel, presiding magistrate Roy Anderson said that due to the callousness of his actions in such a high-profile case, and how the investigation had been hampered considerably by the defendant, as ultimately hundreds of man-hours had been taken up with a hunt for him, that a prison sentence seemed appropriate, and adjourned sentencing until October the 6th. When he appeared that day, Brooks was jailed for four months for wasting police time, with stipendary magistrate Peter Nuttall telling him, I believe your behaviour was wicked, calculated and quite deliberate, for reasons probably only you will know. He highlighted that Brooks had a previous conviction for making hoax calls 19 years previously in 1975, and this would have meant he knew exactly what he was doing and the effect his actions would have. All Brooks could say in response before he was taken down, in a barely audible voice, was, I am absolutely disgusted with myself for the pain I've caused to Mr and Mrs Humphreys. I should bloody well think so too. Some people, eh? Brooks was by no means the only hoax caller to blight the investigation with complete lies either. In a separate case, another hoaxer, Peter Haddon from Burnley, was jailed for four months for wasting police time 11 days after Brooks was imprisoned, after arranging to meet two reporters in a Lancashire pub, claiming to have information to pass to them about Abbey, whilst another unnamed woman called the incident room five times and a national newspaper twice, each time seemingly well-versed in information and details concerning the abduction, though proof of life and knowledge of the crime hadn't been fully established, and always hanging up before the call could be traced. Although she wasn't threatening to harm the child in any of the calls, she clearly showed histrionic responses and rapid mood swings. It was clear that the woman sounded emotionally unstable, and if she did have Abby, then it was paramount nothing should be done to panic her, and all efforts to trace the call were made should she call back, anything to keep her on the line those extra few seconds. When the woman had called a newspaper once again, late in the evening of Sunday 10th of July, this time the call was managed to be traced, and police came up with a name and address in the Nottinghamshire village of Underwood, a young woman who was known to social services and who had two young children, though neither of them babies. A response team was quickly assembled and briefed, and at 2am in the morning of Monday the 11th of July, drove out of Nottingham and gathered in Oxclose Lane Police Station, a small village station a mile or so away from the woman's house. Rather than go in all full-on TJ Hooker though, the plan was to telephone the house and have the woman come to the phone while the police waited outside, ready to enter. She'd be told over the telephone that police officers were about to knock on her door and she was to stay completely calm. If she panicked, the response team would enter by force. The call was made and after a nerve-wracking few moments, the front door opened. The woman, in her late twenties, was deeply shocked at police being in her home, and denied having made the calls. Not surprisingly, 
Her own children, aged four and eight, were also distressed and crying, scared out of their minds at seeing their mother arrested and themselves being cared for by a social worker. But the search of the two-bedroom property found nothing. There was no sign of a baby. Detective Sergeant Nick Holmes was one of the officers in the response team and recalled. She'd contacted the media and she described, quite graphically, what she'd done to take the baby and that she'd worn a wig and everything else. The newspaper contacted us and of course they had her number and we managed to obviously trace where that came back to. We obviously went and checked out her background with Paul Britton and the senior social worker and then, with force support, we forced entry to the house. We found a wig hidden under some carpet as well as a load of press cuttings that she'd taken out of the newspapers and hidden. It looked initially as though we'd got the right place. But of course, we didn't find Abby. It was a really difficult time because we thought we got the right place, but Abby wasn't there, which was bad news. It wasn't until some hours later when we'd spoken to her that we realised she was a fantasist. It transpired that she hadn't had Abby at all. She was merely a clearly vulnerable and ill woman. There's no record of the woman facing any kind of criminal charges for this hoax, but you would hope that counselling and care were instead offered to her, wouldn't you? Now I've somewhat jumped ahead there, but these examples serve to highlight just how urgent, real-time and high-profile the hunt for Abby was. Examples like Brooks and Haddon also show that there is always some mindless individual who contacts an investigating team in cases such as these for their own sick pleasure or for who knows what reason. And you would hope that this pair learned a very valuable lesson in the time that they'd spent in custody. But I digress. By the time Abby had been missing for almost a week, and when the first phase of the carefully constructed strategy had failed, appealing to the abductor herself, on July the 7th, police shifted their focus based upon the likelihood that the abductor had cut herself off from the outside world and had not listened to the earlier appeals. As a result, as she became more secure in a new domestic environment, and the baby became more identified with her, any neighbours and onlookers would become less suspicious about the sudden new mum. For this reason, stage two of the appeal was explicitly aimed at those close to the abductor, friends, family, acquaintances and neighbours who might have suspicions and could hopefully be encouraged to come forward, particularly if they felt that their friend or family member wasn't being seen as a callous criminal by the police. At this point, the video pictures and photo fits were also released because on this likelihood, the risk of Abby settling into her abductor's life outweighed the risk to Abby from possibly startling or panicking the woman. And by the following morning, they were emblazoned on the front pages of every national newspaper. Different faces were also now drafted in to give appeals, family members who would both give variation and would confirm Karen and Roger's anguish. One such was Karen's sister, Josie Clark, who in a press conference said, These have been days of hell for my sister. She is distraught. I ask you to phone the police to let them know and to let my sister know that her baby is well and that she's being taken care of and is safe. She needs to know that she's gaining weight. 
all of the things that a mother would care about. Please phone. Please phone the police. Please let them know and let me know. Tell Karen that her baby is safe. I will be available. I'll be able to pass on the message. Now a special hotline had been installed at West Bridgeford Police Station that was manned exclusively by Josie should the kidnapper ring. And though there were a large number of calls to it, they were from people who merely wanted to help, offering theories and possible suspects, not realising that the line was specifically reserved for the abductor. By the following day, exactly a week since Abby had been taken, there was a massive police presence at the Queen's Medical Centre, with several officers on hand there to take statements from patients and staff, to stop vehicles outside to question passing drivers, anything that might rejog the memory of someone who unknowingly may have had that tiniest bit of information that may lead them to find Abby. Though they'd already received thousands of calls from across the country, offering names and leading to scores of arrests on suspicion nationwide, even photographer David Bailey's wife Catherine Dyer was one person arrested twice because she had a similar look to that of the photo fit of Abby's abductor, and were in the process of checking in with every mother of a new baby spreading outwards from the Nottingham area to rule them out of the inquiry a mammoth task in itself, but Abby still hadn't been found. This drive again shows the urgency felt by every officer, every worker involved in the hunt for Abby. You do whatever you can to find a missing child. You make time out of the day when there isn't any to do. But as the days stretched into weeks, with no sign of their daughter, and cruel hoaxes such as I've described, Roger and Karen were struggling to hold on to hope. Arguably, the nation was too. But it was to transpire that the information to help police find Abby was already in the system. It had already been generated to the incident room, and in echoes of the Yorkshire Ripper investigation, had already been unknowingly ruled out too. Had the chance to find Abby passed by, and would there be a happy ending to the hunt? Well, I shall tell you all about that in the second part of A Mother's Love, because that is an absolutely perfect place to leave the tale for the time being. And the second part will be out with you in a day or two. Or next, of course, depending on when you're listening to this. As with all tales broken down into multi-parts, I shall save my own thoughts and feedback for the wrap-up of the concluding part as well, which I'm off to put the finishing touches to now. I thank you so kindly for joining me in the MOG today. You are each a redwood amongst saplings you lot are, you ace. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.